Listener Production. You're about to be introduced to Nyadol Nguyen. My conversation with Nyadol took place while she was preparing to address the National Press Club of Australia. The voice of a little girl who was born in an Ethiopian refugee camp will soon be gracing one of our country's biggest stages. Getting through law school, becoming a lawyer, they still haven't really settled. You know, they still feel like dreams that would somewhat be taken away by something. Nyadol is a commercial lawyer. She's an anti-racism advocate, media commentator and mum. You've likely seen her on ABC's The Drum or perhaps on Q&A, speaking with her trademark quiet confidence and dignity. They've watched their culture destroyed. They've watched their children killed. They've seen over 400 people die in custody without no one being held accountable. The way that Indigenous people have been treated is a clear statement that our institutions are not adequately addressing the serious issues that are here. But I promise you have never heard her quite like this before. Nyadol shares the most intimate parts of her upbringing, her traumatic earliest memories, and why she will always think of herself as a refugee first. I think there's a part of me that will always be a refugee. I think about how desperate I was to get out of that camp because I knew I wanted an education. I knew I wanted a life. My name is Jamila Rizvi. The Weekend List is on its way, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But now it's time for you to meet the unforgettable Nyadol Nguyen. Nyadol, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It is so lovely to see your face. Thank you. Nyadol, I want to go back in time and sort of introduce you to our listeners and tell them a little bit about you and your life. You were born in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. What is your earliest memory? I think the earliest one would have been a um, rather traumatic one. My uh, being displaced from Ethiopia, there was a conflict, I think, around 1991. And I just remember this line of a lot of people walking, um, walking back to South Sudan as we were displaced from the refugee camp I was born in. Heavy rain, really muddy, so just kind of trawling through mud and water with cuttles and all your properties, uh, everything you can carry with you. Yeah, and I think my little sister nearly passing away. So it was, it was I think those are like kind of my first memory. I think my, my earliest memory is my mum screaming because she thought my sister um, had died. She hadn't though? She hadn't, no, she hadn't. She, had, um, she just ran out of hair. Yeah, she was able to be revived. She's old now and like most little sisters. She's old. She's going to love that description. She's old now. That's a long journey. You're talking about walking from Ethiopia to South Sudan. How long did that journey on foot take? Mm, When I asked mum, she said about 40 days. Yeah, right. I done walking, resting at night, walking during the day. And it wasn't necessarily safe because we were also being followed on the ground by soldiers and sometimes hair bombardment by the Sudan military. Yeah, it was a, a very uh, uh, traumatic experience. But I think uh, some, sometimes you're protected by the fact that you were a child and it was just too much to conceive. Uh, but people like my mother remember it very well. And, um, and in some ways, even in that situation, I was one of the luckiest one because... I come from a family that is relatively well known. My dad was involved in the South Sudanese liberation movement. So, like some of the kids, um, I got to be carried 
so I didn't walk most of the way. So yeah, privilege even within destruction, I suppose. Tell me a little bit about your parents. You've mentioned both your mum and mm. dad. What are your memories of them when you were a kid? I don't have much memories of both. I, 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 and with my dad, I think I only have one memory of ever interacting with him. So he was always absent because he was in Sudan and we, we were in refugee camps. So we never got to see him much. And And when we met him or when he came to visit, he was always busy with meetings and all that. With my mom, I was separated from her soon after the walk back to South Sudan. So then somewhere between 91 to 93, and I ended up in, that's how I ended up in Kakuma refugee camps with other family members. Um, so I didn't get to see her for a long time. I think I saw her once in 1996 when she had come looking for us when, um, when we got news that my dad had been killed in South Sudan. So she came looking and I didn't start living with my mom until 2000, around 2000, when we applied to be resettled to Australia. And she had moved the rest of my family members from Ethiopia. In a way, a lot of the memories I have about my mother are ones that are quite recently forged. You're a lawyer, which is something I want to explore in detail a little later on. But could you tell me first, do you remember what made you want to become a lawyer and when that idea first entered your consciousness? I don't talk a lot about this story. There was a, a lady called um, Nyajil in Kakuma and she was, um, she was just one of the happiest people I've ever met. She was accused of, uh, of killing her husband through some sort of bewitching and was brutally beaten to death while heavily pregnant by her in-laws. And I just remember just the sheer anger I felt that just the, and I still feel it now, that just the absolute anger that these men were never held responsible for such a brutal murder. And I remember thinking then, just wanting to have some power to just hold these people accountable. So I think Lloyd or Lloyd always served that need for holding people to account. And then finally, I think it was the inspiration by local uh, human rights workers as well in the camps. So when I thought of myself as a lawyer, I thought of myself predominantly as a human rights lawyer. I think for a lot of young people who think about the law, it's based on what their parents do or perhaps what they've seen on a television show. Mm -hmm. And for you, it, it was born of seeing injustice in front of you. Definitely, definitely. I think my anchor to the law was always anchored to the idea of, of justice. And also because I think the law provides us an ability to do justice without the violence of war. So I think maybe that was always what's attractive. And I think that's why, even though I have left the law now, there's a part of me that feels that it's a core part of my identity. Growing up, you said you didn't have a lot of time with your dad and your relationship with your mum is, is a more recent one. What were your early years, those primary school years like? And where was your education coming from? I, I started primary school in Kakuma refugee camp at a school that was called Mundeng, named after a, a very old Noer prophet. It's a refugee camp. We didn't have desks or chairs or anything. So what happened is that there were lines of stones, so just big stones that were lined up in the classroom. So you sit, you sat on a stone and we didn't have books. And so I remember like scribbling ABCDs on the sand. 
majority of the time we just spend the day singing songs because we didn't even have a qualified teacher. It was just a way of keeping us busy, the young kids busy in the camp. And so they just put us in a, in a classroom. And, um, and I remember, you know, this teacher making up a, just a really weird song about a what you would call a pancake here. Like, you know, it's just a little... <laughs> now, thinking back at it now, I'm just thinking it's so traumatising to be you know, telling kids that are hungry is getting them to sing about food. Yeah. <laughs> it's come a little bit of torture. <laughs> so far of it. But that was my primary school experience. Um, but I remember, I think I remember the first time I think education felt powerful. You know, I had been given a few Kenyan shillings to go and buy a, a book finally just to be able to write in. And I remember just holding on to this empty exercise book with nothing inside and feeling like the most powerful person in the world. That's probably where my love for education in a way, I was back to. Tell me about your family's decision to come to Australia and the journey here. It was my mum's decision. After my dad passed away, she got all of us, her kids, together and, and brought us to Kakuma. And then she applied for resettlement to Australia and um, took us about, I think we applied in 2000 or 2002, I can't recall, but I think, and we arrived in 2005. So it took a while. And there was a time there where I didn't think it was going to happen at all. And I was so desperate to get out of the camp because by that time I was in the equivalent of year 12. Um, So I knew that my education was coming to an end. And if I didn't get the chance to get out of that camp, my choices were going to become extraordinarily limited. Um, so I remember just nights, just negotiating with God, just being like, I just get me out of this camp. I promise to be a good Christian. I'll always listen to mom, which is very ambitious for a teenager to say. <laughs> and so that's sort of like that. That was just like my prayer every night, um, just get out of that camp. And luckily in March of 2005, we got our approval from the Australian government to resettle in Australia. Um, so it was really joyful. It was a very joyful moment. I remember landing at at uh, Melbourne Telemarine Airport, getting into a car, driving to the host family's house, having KFC for the first time. I don't think I've had <laughs> much KFC in my life. And just trying to take everything in, everything in. I was just looking forward to go to school. I was just looking forward to just grab every single opportunity I could put my hand on and, and just fly. It was it was such an exciting time. So tell me about grabbing all of those opportunities because obviously you're a highly intelligent, enthusiastic, hardworking person. So being in Melbourne would have presented all these opportunities, but at the same time you would have had family responsibilities. I'm imagining oh. you're not arriving with a whole lot of money. How did you find the yeah. space for your study and the time for your study? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, we did not arrive with like little money. We arrived with no money. We didn't even have a dollar to our name when we came to this country. And we only had the clothes that each of us has packed in our back. That was it. And two two to three weeks after arriving here, the host family just couldn't take us. There were 10 of us in the two or three bedroom house. So it was impossible to keep living there. So we had to move, find a place as soon as we can to rent, which was really hard for mom to be able to manage all those things. Um, in three weeks, you had to find where the local shopping center was. We didn't have a car. You know, it was getting to winter. It was getting cold. We had just come from a place where it was almost 45 degrees every day. Um, so I remember we used to like pack our shopping and like push the trolley like 12 minutes, 13 minutes back to the house because we didn't have a car or anything. Because my mom 
also didn't speak English. It meant I really had to find my own ways in the system. So I went to school, I, you know, found my own school, made my own appointment to like register in high school and finish year 12. You're just responsible for so much. I think, you know, my mom would go for extended periods of time to Africa. So you were like also a parent, you're paying bills, you're paying not only your bills, you're paying sometimes your own siblings' bills, you know, and their school needs, you're paying, uh, you know, rent and <laughs> and you had nothing, you know, you, you sort of like just really survive by just by hanging on. Um, I remember particularly when I was in at Melbourne Law School, I had just got in and I, I had no money whatsoever. And I had um, had spent my last $20 sadly buying, I think, a dress for like a school party, which was a bad decision to have made anyway. But I remember lying on my back and finishing my last assessment. Um, and it was for legal ethics. I had not eaten for about a day and a half. I had no money for food. And I was getting so dizzy and just feeling like throwing up. So I just lie down on my back and finish the take-home exams. And I remember when I submitted that exam, I just felt it was one of the few times that I felt maybe I am just trying beyond what I can take. You know, like maybe this is just not set up for people like me. Maybe maybe the cards are just stuck too high. And, and when I submitted that assessment, I thought if I get anything less than 70, I was prepared to quit the law. My result came back and I had got 71. So... <laughs> Far out. What a line in the sand to draw for yourself. Yeah, I thought I wasn't going to do something halfway and struggle doing it. But, you know, it definitely was. There were some really, really hard times. What you're talking about is surviving and thriving despite incredible odds to the contrary. Does that come from a confidence or a determination? What do you think it is that drives you to keep achieving in circumstances where it would yeah. be much easier not to try? I, d- I definitely don't think it's confident. I think because of my own childhood, not having your mom there, not having your dad there, perhaps my identity was formed around being a fighter. So you find things, you, whatever it is you, you face, you, you fight. Because what's the other alternative? If you give up, there's not going to be a mom or a dad to come hug you. You talked about being a, a fighter. Another family of fighters have been in the news quite a bit in Australia this week. Priya and Nadez Murugapan and their two Aussie-born daughters, Kopika and Thanika. The whole family, except four-year-old Thanika, have exhausted their legal attempts to be granted refugee status. Mm. When you're reading about stories like this family's or hearing them on the news at night, does your legal training dominate the way you think about it or does your emotional brain take over? Yeah. I know Martin Luther King says this this quote about that sometimes we are committed to order, not justice, you know. And I think that law can be a commitment to order, not justice. And I think in situations where, particularly in the case of this family, there is literally no justifiable reason to detain them you know but there there might be uh, reasons of order to do it it's the way we've done things this is the rule you know they've, they've tried the courts this is the particular way so I am not as much as I am a lawyer and you can think 
logically about things. I think it's another step to think that just because it logically makes sense and it's the legal thing, that it's the just thing to do and that's the right thing to do. And in fact, historically, we know that laws can be as oppressive, in fact, more efficiently oppressive than levels of disorder, you know, because then it's justified, it's legitimated, acceptable. One of the reasons why we've accepted the treatment act we, in a general sense, is because we think it's legally acceptable, even if though it's morally is very hard to swallow. So I think I try not to make those distinctions because I think the highest expression of the law, the most dignified expression of the law is to serve justice in a particular set of circumstances. And what that looks like will always be different. And I, I think if we were just apply the letter of the law without the spirit of the law, then I don't think we're much of a society because <laughs> uh, it, it would be to assume that the law is not imbued with all our biases and prejudices of society. And it is. Overall, I think in the context of um, uh, how we respond to refugees and asylum seekers, uh, I think there's a part of me that will always be a refugee. Like when I think about those two young girls, I think about how desperate I was to get out of that camp because I knew I wanted an education. I knew I wanted a life. I want the same thing for them. Nayadol, thank you so much for being on the weekend briefing. I could talk to you for another four 20-minute segments, but you have a National Press Club address to write and I am yeah. taking up your time. How do you feel about being asked to give one of the most famous speeches that this country affords? And what do you want people to know? It's definitely a large platform. And a part of me is very scared because I, I don't necessarily like saying it because I think you want everybody wants to appear confident. But I have significant imposter syndrome. Like I just, I, there's part of me that still thinks, you know, I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to be back in Kakao refugee camps trying to figure stuff out. You know, so, so, so there's a part of me that still is getting used to everything else. And it, it, it hasn't yet made sense. A lot of the things, you know, even getting through law school, becoming a lawyer, you know, they still feel like dreams that would somewhat be taken away by something. But what I do know, though, is that I am going to turn up with all my fear and my imposter syndrome and deliver that speech. Be scared and do it anyway. I think uh, everyone in the audience and the rest of us will be all the better for hearing you speak. Thanks, Nidal. Thank you very much. Have a good one. That's it from Nyadol Nguyen. You can find her on all your social media channels or learn more about her work with the Harmony Alliance. Don't go away. The Weekend List with Tate McGregor is coming up just in a moment. Hello and welcome to The Weekend List and welcome to Tate McGregor who's jumping into the chair because she has got a podcast for us to listen to. If you love books, this is a podcast all about great ones. It's Shameless Presents The Books That Changed My Life. It's a new listener podcast exclusively on Listener and it's brought to you by the girls who bring Shameless. Their first episode is out. It's with Kevin Kwan and he is the author of Crazy Rich Asians and he brings a couple of books to the table that have been pivotal in his life. So not only do you get to learn about great literature, you also get to learn about the people and moments in their life that have been defined by literature. Michelle and Zara 
the hosts are also really big readers themselves. And Kevin, he reads 15 books at one time and will probably get through, in his opinion, not a lot of books every year, but it's between 50 and 80 books in a year. Um, So I don't know about you or me, but that's a big number of books. Yeah, I cannot compete with that by any means, but I will throw my recommendation behind this one because those shameless girls, Michelle and Zara, are just brilliant. They have a Midas touch. Everything that they are involved with turns into absolute gold. This will be a must listen. I can confirm absolute gold. There are so many poignant moments within this book. It's not just bubbly social satire. It's not just about Chanel and Louis Vuitton. You know, there's these very painful things happening, you know, with with one of the characters losing a child. At the same time, there's another character who is a top socialite who really cares about her image and her son is dying of AIDS. What have you got for us, Jamila? What have you been watching? I have been watching Sweet Tooth on Netflix and you're going to have to bear with me because it's a tricky sell, but it's worth it, everyone. It is an eight-part fantasy series. The lead is a kid called Gus and Gus is born part animal, part human. Stay with me, stay with me. <laughs> okay. So it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic show. It's co-produced by Robert Downey Jr. And it's adapted from a comic book series which depicts the emergence of hybrid children after this mysterious virus sweeps the wow. world. So there's a little bit of pandemic-ness in there. There's that flavour. There's also some magical realism. The central characters are beautifully cast and my husband and I devoured it in a couple of nights and I am already hanging out for series two. Guys like me aren't good for kids like you. How do you know? Most people hate kids like me. Rusty. The last men have made it their mission to eliminate hybrids. We've made it ours to protect them. You could say you've really got a sweet tooth for sweet tooth then. You're devouring it that quickly. Sure do. (laughs) Well, I've got another one you can watch. I caught Cruella, the new Disney live action film. It is, in my opinion, possibly one of the most undermarketed Disney films in existence because I haven't really been seeing a lot of press for it, but it's phenomenal. It brings along Emma Thompson and Emma Stone, the best Emmas in the industry. Oh, it's got both of them. Both when you said of Emma them. Thompson, I thought you'd you'd said something wrong, but it's no, got no, Emma no. Stone and Emma Thompson. So Emma Stone is Cruella. Emma Thompson um plays essentially her boss, but there are some twists and turns along the way. It's the origin story of how Cruella came to be the 101 Dalmatian fur coat wearing fashionista that she is. And it's told really well. Not only is the storyline surprising, has you in laughter and tears, it's really well woven with the original story that makes a lot of sense. And it's just beautiful to look at. The fashion, the clothes in there, I just really hope end up in a museum one day. But the best thing is, you know what I did? Didn't even go to the cinema, just bought it on Disney Plus and now I own the movie and watched it in my own living room. So if you can't be bothered like me, boom, just right there on your laptop. How good. Cruella would recommend. Well hacked, mate. And then I've got one more podcast to round us out today. I want to recommend Taunts, which is by Claire Tonti. It's a new podcast. The first episode is with me, so I feel like... <laughs> so if we can't get enough a, of you... Bit of a sad person recommending it. But I have listened to a few of the other episodes that are due out soon, and I promise they're really good. Claire sits down with her guests and talks about all the feelings. Uh, it's a podcast about how we see ourselves, our inner critic, and our emotions. 
It's about the stories that we were told when we were kids and how they shape who we are Mm. now. So in my case, that means a very deep dive into the world of Captain Planet and Disney. Beauty and the Beast? Okay, yeah, sure. She's celebrated because Belle likes books and she wants a library. Who wouldn't want that damn library, right? But at the same time, she decides to stay with her aggressive, violent captor. (laughs) I mean, it is a story of domestic abuse that is kidnapping. (laughs) That is all we've got time for today on The Weekend Briefing. If you cannot get enough of us, then you need to make sure you subscribe. Head to the listener app now or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on all the socials and that's a really good place to let us know your recommendations for the weekend list. We would love to hear what you are up to, what you are watching, what you're listening to, what you would recommend for others to get involved with. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom and Annika will have the latest headlines direct to your headphones. Listener.